We're continuing in our study in the book of Leviticus. We come this morning to Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 21. Our New Testament complementary passage is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 through 16. So if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 13, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, hear God's word. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Leviticus, chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, continuing in the reading of God's word. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with a thanksgiving sacrifice, unleavened bread, unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings in the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the first day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice for his offering is a vow offering or free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted. And he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is upon him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast, or any unclean, detestable creature, and then eat some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings. That person shall be cut off from his people. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray that you would make us alive to it. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So this whole thing 
beginning in Exodus and really continuing on through the passage this morning. This entire thing that Moses is doing is describing for you something that already exists. Specifically, he's describing it for the children camped on the plains of Moab who have spent the last 40 years with this tabernacle thing right in the midst of them. They've spent their entire lives around this thing. And now this is the first time that they're seeing it in written form, what this thing is and what it's about. Now they've been told they're not worshiping in ignorance. But this is the first time that Moses describes for them this grand visual thing called the tabernacle. And I make that point because you need to understand as we listen to these words, as we hear these strange rites from long, long ago, the point is not whether or not you're allowed to eat your peace sacrifice the next day or whether you have to burn it up. The point is what is being pictured? What is God picturing for us in these verses? What is God picturing for us in this peace offering? And what I want you to see here this morning are two elements of this picture. Two elements that come out of the text in front of us. The first is verses 11 through 19. And that is communion. And the second is in verses 20 and 21. And that is consecration. Communion and consecration. The tabernacle is a visual picture. It's a visual representation. It is not just the Garden of Eden. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know you ought to be able to say this in your sleep already about the Holy of Holies and the gold and the the mercy seat and the the lampstand and the, the, the table of showbread and the loaves and all of the things that are pictured here of harmony, of peace, of protection. The Holy of Holies is this Garden of Eden again. And the rest of the tabernacle is about how to get back in. The rest of the tabernacle and the the sacrificial laws and the, the rites and all of that is about how do we enter back into this place of peace and harmony with God. But it's also a representation of something else. It's not just the Garden of Eden, but think, what is the tabernacle? Physically, what is it? It's a tent. And just like every other tent of this million-plus group of people that's moving through the wilderness, this tent is taken down, it's packed up, it's moved, It's set back up again. This tent travels its nomadic existence together with the people that are camped around this tent. Because the tabernacle, beloved, is a picture of home. It's a picture of identification. 
God dwelling in our midst. A visual reminder day by day by day, mile after mile after mile, weary step after weary step, exhausted at the end of whatever the most recent march was, you finally put up your own household tent, you're trying to scrape together what you can for dinner, your feet hurt, the kids are cranky, life is going bad, and here is Jehovah God with His home right in the middle, right here with me, going through this experience with me, identifying with me because his tent is there and the light is always on. And in front of that tent eternally is held forward this stunning visual representation, the eternal flame of God's wrath together with the eternal sacrifice of the atonement constantly held before the people of Israel. Visual images are powerful, beloved. Visual images touch our souls. And the visual image that comes out of this passage this morning is a feast. You'll notice if you look at all the weird words and look at all the weird verses and all the stuff that we just read. We're describing a feast. God, the ultimate host, inviting you to come into His place to have a two-day feast with Him. There's something about food and feasting that transcends cultures. Some of my deepest friendships in Uganda were nurtured around food that I don't eat normally here. My deepest friendships in the Middle East absolutely were cemented around food. Food is a, is a trigger for us of happiness. It's a trigger for us of home, of peace, of comfort, of security. Those Thanksgiving dinners that are so important to us, those moments that we cherish, those moments, beloved, hear this carefully, those moments in which friendships are deepened and relationships grow, they center around food. They center around the table, around the feasting together. And that's precisely what God is inviting people to come and do. Bring your peace offering and eat it here. Bring your thanksgiving offering and come into my courts with singing, with shouts of praise that you are redeemed, that you are at peace. Come. Feast. In a weary journey, in a weary wilderness, 
the weariness of my sin, the weariness of the oppression that is the atmosphere around me, the weariness of the struggle for holiness, God says, you're at peace. Let's have a feast. Let's gather together. And let's come. And enjoy a two-day feast before God. Now, children, I wonder how many of you, and possibly adults, have ever wondered why we use the bread we use in communion. Some places use crackers. Some places use itty-bitty, teeny-tiny little things that I think are wafers. I'm not sure what they are. But they're itty-bitty, teeny-tiny things. We use bread. Common, ordinary bread. We do that intentionally. It's not because we... Personally, I don't like the flavor of the itty-bitty, teeny-tiny things, but that's a side note. That's not worth... uh, making a, a, a practice for communion bread over. But in our passage, you will see. In our passage. So if any of you young kids after the service can come up and tell me why we use leavened bread, I'll be very interested to have a conversation with you. I'd love to hear what your thoughts on this are. Because the answer is here in our passage. Did you notice there are two different kinds of bread that are brought? Did you notice the worshiper brings two completely different types of bread for two different feasts, both of which are under the heading of the peace offering? And Moses makes a distinction between these two, but the overall heading is this is not for sin. In one, the person brings leavened bread, and in the other, he brings unleavened. Both the one with the tender conscience... Coming before God, aware of their own sin and brokenness, offering to God this thanksgiving meal that says, as much as I can, I want to be free from all the corruption. That tender conscience, that tender worshiper, that one upon whom the law of God sits heavily, that one upon whose conscience their own failure, their own inability to live up to God's standards on anything like a consistent basis, the one on whom that burden sits, is invited to come. To come and feast. But also the one whose conscience is at ease with God, whose conscience is at peace with God, They don't bring the unleavened feast. They bring the normal, common, everyday bread because they're pure. They don't have leaven that they need to get rid of. They don't have corruption. They are pure before God. Now, were they ever perfect? Of course not. But you and I well know, you and I very well know the difference in your heart between on the one hand, on Monday... I want to live joyfully and honestly before God and I'm pursuing Him, stumbling and and imperfectly, but you know that feeling, I hope. (laughs) But you also know the feeling that comes right after, right after I said that word to my wife. 
right after I did that thing that I, sh- that I knew I should not have done. Right after. You know that feeling too, don't you? <laughs> I'll come before God. But I'll come before Him saying, God, forgive me. Help me be the person that you call me to be, because I'm not. And do you notice that both of those are invited to come and feast with God? Do you see God's loving mercy here? That he invites both the one with the heavy burdened conscience to come and feast. And he invites the joyful one who comes with all the joy of a child. The confidence and faith and trust of a child. He says, come and feast. Food brings us together. Food deepens relationships. Food crosses cultural boundaries. Beloved, how much this food, how much this meal, how much this hospitality. Well, one other thing before we move on from that, from this communion section, Anybody who knows me knows that I am not the outgoing half of the duo that is my marriage. I am the guy whose perfect day is sitting in a hole with a couple of books (laughs) and nobody ever talking to it. My wife, on the other hand, is the outgoing and loving and cheerful and all of that. So, it should come as no surprise that when we have our twice-a-year cul-de-sac cookout where we put a little yard sign at the entrance to our little subdivision and we announce a date, and all we do is pull out our grill and put out a couple of folding tables, and last Friday night we had about 40, 45 people from our neighborhood, all our neighbors, all people that are next door to us, all showing up and just having a good time. And it was rich. It was, deli- it was, it was wonderful. I enjoyed the fellowship. I did note, by the way, it was interesting as I was, this is part of those rabbit trails we were talking about. Uh, it, it was interesting as I was talking to my neighbors, I realized I'm interacting with people that are completely outside my normal circle. <laughs> There wasn't a soul around there that held the same theology I did. Do. (laughs) There may have been some evangelical Christians around there, but there were plenty of people who were way off my reservation. Here's the point. That hospitality was rich. That hospitality was deep. We have received cards and texts thanking us for the hospitality. It was a joyful time. But you know what else was a critical element? Those feasts you have to be intentional about, don't you? You got to plan Thanksgiving dinner, don't you? You got to work to clean the house up. 
You got to get in the car and drive all the way over across town. You've got to load up the van with the crumb crunchers that you know are going to be screaming and hollering when you're two minutes out of the driveway. And they're probably going to scream and holler until you get them back home at night. All the hassle that comes around those moments of hospitality. All of the intentionality that is necessary. I had a wonderful experience on Friday night. It's not an experience that I would have chosen. If you had asked me my druthers, I would have told my wife, please order a pizza and let me watch a movie. That was not on my list of things I was excited about at all. But I had an enriching experience. And you know why? A, it required intentionality. I had to walk out there and do it. But B, I can be so concerned about what's going on on Facebook. I can be so concerned about what's going on in Washington, D.C. I can be so concerned about what's going on culturally. I can be so concerned about so many things. But Jesus Christ is right where my feet are. Jesus Christ and His ministry is in the embodied presence. Jesus Christ and what He calls me to be is not the guy sitting in my study straightening out Rando from Wisconsin on his view of the eternal subordination of the Son but rather getting up out of my chair and walking down to the end of my driveway and talking to people that I see every day. Talking to people that walk their dogs in front of my house that I wave to as I'm driving back and forth. People that have got so very, very little in common with me and yet people that are just like me. Every single one of us stands on our own two feet. You're born with the two feet underneath you. You're going to die with the two feet underneath you. And you're going to stand before God's holy throne of judgment on your two feet. And that's all you got. That's all I got. But beloved, God invites us to come and eat. To come and have fellowship. To come and be at peace with Him. So the answer to the question, why do we use leavened and not unleavened? Why do we use this bread and not crackers? Gets into our understanding of when you and I come before God right now, when you and I come before God this morning, are you coming before God with your sin? Or are you coming before God a cleansed person at Peace with him. Beloved, he's declared you to be at peace. I'm not, I'm not knocking people that use unleavened bread. Please don't be that banal. <laughs> this is not a diatribe. 
<laughs> leavened bread versus unleavened bread. The point is that we come before God with the offering of the one with leavened bread. Because the price has been paid. It is paid in full. And we are completely at peace before him. But God invites us into this meal. He invites us to come and eat with him. But he invites us to come into this meal, secondly, as a fruit of our consecration to him. Notice in verses 20 and 21, all that stuff about touching unclean things. The one thing that you can at least see in there is it's an absolute blanket prohibition. In verses 20 and 21, if you touch a beast, if you touch a creature, or if you touch anything that is unclean, there has to be complete consecration to God. It's got to be a whole heart. God is not interested in you giving 99%. Because 99% is idolatry. 99% of your life committed to God and walking in His ways is pure satanic idolatry. Because if you hold on to that 1%, that 1% is your idol. That 1% is your God. That one thing that you will not give up. That one thing that is your pet. There you go. Set it on your mantle. Bow down and worship before it with all the ridiculousness and stupidity that comes along with it. But beloved, if you and I are consecrated to God, if you and I are given to God, if you and I desire to be holy, to reflect Him in our words, in our manner, in our actions, this peace and fellowship that we see in this communion come out of a cleansed conscience. These are not sins of, or, or, or sacrifices of burnt offerings. They're not trespass offerings. These are offerings that come from a cleansed conscience. And the writer to the Hebrews, the reason that we looked at Hebrews chapter 13, the writer to the Hebrews picks this up when he says in verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We could boil down what your sacrifice is. Your sacrifice of thanksgiving from Hebrews chapter 13 is simply word and deed. Did you see that? The fruit of lips that acknowledge His name and doing good to others. That's simple. Word and deed. What you proclaim with your mouth, what you proclaim with your life, and how you live it. Word and deed. That's the fruit of the sacrifice. That's the fruit that He is looking for from you and me. That's the fruit which Paul will say is our reasonable service. But the other thing I want you to see so clearly from Hebrews 13 
is how intensely personal and local it is. What's the fruit? Your proclamation. Your lips. You. (laughs) Your heart. Not those systems out there. Not her heart right next to me. Not his heart. (laughs) But you. Transformed by the gospel. It's intensely personal. Are called to bear fruit from lips that acknowledge his name. And hands that do not neglect to do good to others. Beloved, the kingdom is in your midst. If you want to know how to change the world, if you want to know how to turn Northern Virginia upside down for Jesus Christ, if you want to know how to see the gospel come in power and glory and transform, right here, the kingdom is in your midst. This is what you and I are called to do. is to serve one another. To do good to one another. To live together. To grow together. To encourage one another. To exhort one another. To call out one another with a spirit of mercy and grace lest you too be tempted and you fall. All of those prescriptions all have to do with this thing right here in this room. They've got nothing to do with what I see on my television, my computer, my articles, my news. they got nothing. It's here. It's right here that the kingdom of God is. And even worse... That's not a heavy enough load for you. Even worse, it's right here. It's right here. The kingdom of God breaks in. As a young man, a young woman commits themselves to the daily disciplines of word and prayer. The kingdom of God breaks in. As a young man, a young woman, a young boy, a young girl makes a commitment to walking after God in the way that they honor and respect their parents, in the way that they minister to their wife today, in the way that they love their husband today. That's where the kingdom of God breaks in. That's where the transformation happens. And you know what's interesting? Is just like food crosses culture, so this kingdom crosses cultures. It's why I delight, I'm I'm overjoyed that here in this own small, tiny little room, small, tiny little group, we have people of different tongues and tribes and nations. And is it because I determined that as a woke pastor, I was going to make sure that I promoted 
whatever it is, so that we can have ethnic diversity in our... Shut up. Shut up. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is one of two things. A sinner who needs to be saved by grace or a sinner saved by grace. And this message is one that speaks to all human beings. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is created unique in the image of God and as such is precious. And every man, woman, boy, and girl who is united to Jesus Christ is my brother, my sister. And we're all needed together. I need others who are not like me. I stood out in my cul-de-sac and I had conversations with people that my commonality with them really is pretty superficial. I don't, I don't share cultural background. I don't share vocation by any stretch. <laughs> I don't share religious conviction. My, my commonality with them is pretty shallow. And yet that time of communion on Friday night around hot dogs and hamburgers and whatever else touched everybody's souls. Made people joyful. How much more do you think it would be if we had a communion that had nothing to do with what street I live on? If we had a meal, a fellowship meal, that had not a thing in the world to do with living in Northern Virginia. But I knew that in the wilds of Uganda or the wilds of Sterling in Northern Virginia, <laughs> I knew that there was something I had in common with people thousands of years ago speaking a language that I continue to struggle to understand today after 20 years of interpreting it and translating it. <laughs> utterly unlike you and me. And yet, utterly you and me. Men and women, boys and girls, created in God's image, redeemed by His mighty and outstretched hands, and invited to come and feast. Father, in your Old Testament we see glorious pictures, and in your New Testament the same. The glorious picture of bread and wine, the glorious picture of a lamb slain and yet seated. The glorious picture of the great, victorious victim. Father, help our lives this day and this week to reflect that peace, communion, and harmony that He has won for us. In Christ's name, amen.